Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods with UT Southwestern. On today's episode, Jacob is going to bring us something magical and popping culture. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we are going to discuss the academic article, Adult Attachment and Jealousy of the Partner-Infant Relationship at the Transition to Parenthood. Very cool. It's more of a, a parenting specific article that I'm really looking forward to. In good or bad advice, we are going to discuss a request from a listener specifically about how to cope with a toxic mother-in-law. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it in. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775, email us at attachedpodcast.com, or tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us at attachedpodcast. You can also go to our website, attachpodcast.com, where soon, believe it or not, we're actually going to have some merchandise up. So that'll be very, very exciting. Also, please consider being a member of our attached team by going to patreon.com slash attached podcast. But before we get to all of that goodness, how are you all doing? I'm doing pretty well. So as the baby gets closer and closer to being born, we've been getting new and exciting, sometimes exciting, sometimes not so exciting things. But one thing I was really excited about, so my parents were going to come visit us, help us set up the nursery a little bit, but because of COVID, plans got changed and they weren't able to fly out. So my mom called up and said, hey, we since we can't come see you, we would like to let you splurge a little bit and we'll, we really want to support like you getting something that maybe you would not spend as much money on. We're like, we need a stroller. They're like, yeah, find a really good stroller and buy one. I love it. So Chelsea did a lot of really great research and we found this brand out of the UK that was like highly recommended and it just arrived today and I like put it all together (laughs) and I didn't think I could have so much fun pushing something around. It is super light and since our families like live in different states than us, it actually folds up and has a case so it can look like a carry-on luggage to put up above. It's like got all these like aerodynamic flaps in it. It's like UV protected. It's like oh, for the kid. I'm like, I thought yeah, it was for the to kid. Protect the stroller. The stroller. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, I, the kid. Yeah, that makes I sense. also thought yeah. that. And I didn't realize how excited I could be about a I stroller, but I'm pretty excited about it. I don't remember the brand, or I'd like shout it out, and then hopefully we'd get a sponsor. But yeah, 100. percent That's totally gonna happen. No, I'm, I'm with you in the <laughs> Just, hope. I'm with you in the hope. I'll look it up and uh, figure out which one it is. But it's it was a. I didn't awesome. realize how sophisticated yet simple strollers could be. Oh my gosh. I really wish you did know the brand name now. I wish we did. Yeah. Do you want me to go look? Also, (laughs) also just, just so you know, it's just that fun when the actual baby's in it too. It's not stressful at all. It's super light. Just folds up real easy. You travel around the world. It's the same thing once the baby's in there. (laughs) It's like Instagram, right? That's what the world is like. That's what couples that travel the world. Uh Enjoy. Just a few weeks. I remember the first time 
<laughs> that's all. When the first time I went walking with my oldest and, and the push stroller, my husband, I just, you know, put her in it and we were walking and my husband was like, you need to lock her in there. I mean, she's like six weeks old, so she's not going to like fall out or anything like that. And like, he made me put all of the straps all on her, make sure she was tight and secure in that stroller. I was, And I was like, where, where do you think I'm going to walk her? Like, do you <laughs> think I'm going to like run relay? Like what, go over obstacles with this stroller? But it was really funny and also really adorable how concerned he was about my stroller skills. <laughs> Woods. So right before the pandemic had really started, we all got locked in our homes several months ago. My... It feels like years. It feels like... Right. Back in 2020, <laughs> we we had a pipe explosion in our master bath. And by explosion, it's far less dramatic than that. It was a slow drip. <laughs> it had been... <laughs> A little different. <laughs> Leaking in our wall probably for many years and then eventually just reached some kind of, I don't know, saturation nightmare capacity where it came through the walls and destroyed all of our carpet and oh our vanity and the wall and etc. So for, and then, and then the pandemic hit. And for a long time, our kitchen or our bathroom counter was in our backyard. So we looked like really classy quarantiners here. I mean, really representing Texas well. Right. I mean, well, if you've been to Lantana, where Sarah lives, Lantana, Texas, you know that those houses are just trash. Like, like... Couches on the front porch, all disheveled. It's just a really rough part of town. Thank you, Thank you Jacob. <laughs> I appreciate it. I really, for for listeners out there, it's totally accurate. I assume the HOA had no rules about bathroom sinks being in the yard, so we were in the clear. But now we're getting estimates to how to repair this whole thing. And so what I've been doing in the last week is using what I believe to be highly superior like car buying negotiation Ooh. skills yeah, <laughs> for, for attempting to get better estimates from each person who comes out to look at our bathroom. Because there's no way that the numbers they're giving me could possibly be correct. And so I like to drop subtle hints that whoever was just here a few days ago to give me the prior estimate got a little bit closer to where we're looking to spend. <laughs> Don't you two want to come Don't close to what we might want to spend? And so I'm just leaning in doorways very like provocatively. And I don't Interesting. <laughs> I was going to use the word creepy, but provocative. Yes. Go on. Right. Yes. I'm just trying to manipulate, manipulate these <laughs> contractors into thinking that maybe they need to work harder for whatever they're about to budget and assume. You guys assume. can't see it, but she's full on like running her fingers through her hands, right? Her hair right now. I, what I meant was provocative in terms of like manipulating <laughs> oh. their sales strategies. But Patricia always making it sexual. That's Sorry. what she does. Oh, the worst. I really just want a good bathroom <laughs> if they could just put those sinks back in there. So that's that's what I've been up to. It's just also I would like a UV protected <laughs> shower, <laughs> just ah, like yeah. just, just like Jacob's, like stroller. Jacob's kid will. Oh. Gosh, I guess I've been doing a lot of cheesing again. I know. <laughs> cheesing? Is that I an know. actual word? Probably like, not. A verb. I think you should. I figure like there's probably some sort of blog about there for cheesers called cheesing. Like if I would not, figure I that has to one. be a thing. I'll make it yeah. I'll make it a sub page of our attached podcast. <laughs> cheesing. Cheesing. Cheesing, cheesing with, with Patricia. With Pat- 
Yes. Cheesing with attached. But I did learn how to make mozzarella, which I had not done oh. before. I'm just kind of amazed sometimes when like you do something and you follow directions and it, it works. looks like it's supposed to. Like the greatest praise I've gotten is from my daughter and she said, it looks like cheese. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Yes, it does. She did not have to say it was good or bad or delicious. She just needed to say it looked like cheese, and I just soared through the roof. Successful. It looks like it's a thing that it's supposed to look it's like. It's edible. It's like that capitalization process we've talked about here before on the pod, right? She's giving you that really warm, enthusiastic, excited feedback about, yes, mother, just- you've created cheese. Yes, it Successful cheese like cheese. <laughs> you know, I like cheese. I needed this win. You know what? On second thought, maybe I'm investing too much emotionally in successfully no. making cheese. No, I don't think so. I think if we're going to do cheesing, you. you should go all in. If you're into cheesing, you have to put your heart and soul into it. I'm pretty yeah. sure that is the high line of cheesing. There's, there's no halfway cheesing, right? It's either all in cheesing, cheesing or <laughs> no cheesing. There, there might be relationship metaphors there, but I'm too, I'm too lazy to extrapolate. <laughs> We'll let our listeners extrapolate how cheese is like relationships to me. Is that what we're talking about? I don't know. That's going to be our new segment. How cheese is like relationships. And how we, none of us really want to be provolone. <laughs> Good on <laughs> <laughs> me. I mean, yeah. That section, you can have that. that that'll be our spinoff pod and you could just have the pun section, Woods. Fantastic. Jacob, don't look so embarrassed for me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Our listeners are going to write in about that one. I have fear. Love it. See, the problem is I'm not good with... Wait, that wasn't even close to a pun. They're They're going to shred it. They're going to... Oh, shred it. it. No, you just missed another good pun, Patricia. You are not the pun master. Woods is the pun master. Woods is the pun master. I relinquish any cheese puns to the one and only master of puns. Add it to my CV. First up, poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and our family. But a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view the relationships around us. Jacob, what do you have for us this week? So given the little bit of hiatus in reality television, we're once again going with scripted television. So have any of you watched Rami on Hulu? Yes, I watched the first five or six episodes. Okay, you haven't finished the season? Have not finished the season. Okay, totally worth it. So, Sarah, have you watched it? (laughs) No, you knew knew the answer was going to be no. I just, someday, we might just pick something I've seen before. It's just not today. So, not only is it a incredibly well-acted, written sitcom that if if you need something to binge-watch... Uh, it's totally worth it and it just has some really interesting storylines and perspectives but i want to talk in particular about the kind of the underlying message and i don't know if you'd agree with this patricia but in the first season of rami it seems like everyone is seeking for something they want this sense of connectedness yeah and this sense of where do i fit in so rami focuses on a muslim american 
American family who the parents are both immigrants from Egypt. And Rami is kind of stuck in these two worlds in his hometown of New Jersey. One, as a Muslim identified young adult, he wants to go to the mosque, he wants to engage in prayer, he's trying to, you know, not do drugs or or drink alcohol, but at the same time he's going out on parties on Friday night and hooking up with women and and so there's this tension that exists within him. Right. Um, But he's still not drinking when he's out out partying. Oh, exactly, right? So he's like It's also interesting because it rubs some people the wrong way so yeah in that world yeah so and his two friends ones that that's the doctor and then the diner runner are yeah. hilarious also so Ramy engages in what i think and this is kind of a spoiler for the end of the season so sorry patricia but he or sarah <laughs> sarah is or getting s- so mad or sorry sarah <laughs> sarah i know that if it's not the office parks or recreation Damn. or frozen one or two i don't have a lot of faith in yeah. you <laughs> Okay, go on. She also watched all of Shit's Creek. Oh, okay. who, has not, who has not watched all of Shit's Creek among the three of us? Wait, you Me. haven't watched it, Jacob? Not, I haven't watched the last season because oh. I don't. It's on. I have to wait for it to come on Netflix. Anyway, what I appreciate about Rami's journey is it the how it's rooted in his family of origin experiences, right? So yeah. towards the end of the season, he discovers these tapes that his grandfather had sent to his dad. His grandfather telling his dad that he had made a big mistake about moving to America oh, wow. and that he'd left the family. And so Rami actually goes back to Egypt to try to engage in this sense of connecting to who he is and his cultural identity his ethnic identity but when he goes there he finds it completely different than what he expects and his family members to be more similar in culture and struggling with the same issues and sense of connectedness and fitting in as he does and i thought it was a really great illustration of how understanding our larger family system our our connections just beyond maybe our partner or our kids and really looking at our relationships to cousins and aunts and uncle uncles and grandparents and in-laws and those extended family relationships that build out the system can help us connect more because through this exploration he has to navigate relationships with a complex system of family members and in that he starts to try to and he doesn't get there at the end of the first season but find a more a more grounded sense of self and a more clear vision of where he wants to go and what he wants to do and i think that that's something that we don't typically think about doing yeah. when we think about developing an identity or a sense of self that is going um, back and and exploring mm-hmm. our our family yeah i love right that. like a lot of times we think that identity is developed in being separate from not connected to Mm. and I think that what I really appreciate about Rami and they do this with all of the characters in subtle ways and in explicit ways throughout the series is showing that through connection a lot of times is how we find that self. And by exploring relationships that go back generations, we can more fully understand the context of why we are how we are. And because of the family that we've been embedded and this family has been connected across generations and the patterns and ideas have been passed down, it helps us to more better see these patterns, these stories, Mm -hmm. these narratives that our family tells themselves and how we fit or don't fit into those. And also gives us, I think, more 
ability to choose how we engage with that system as opposed just to reacting to it. So there's a really great episode that focuses on Rami's mom and on his sister, and they're navigating, you know, kind of this same idea, but as women and women, um, as Muslim women in America and in a devout family and what that means. And it's really, really well done. So that all said, I would like, I rarely want to watch series like same episodes over and over again. There's very few series I'll do with it, but Rami is definitely one that I will watch again and revisit. Looks like I have to finish it. Fantastic. Ironically, maybe Sarah will start it. Who knows? I feel like I see a lot of those same themes in Frozen 2. I completely agree. (laughs) I would tell you more about it, but too late. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Adult Attachment and Jealousy of the Partner-Infant Relationship at the Transition to Parenthood, recently published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships by Dr. Anna Alsavsky and her colleagues at Ohio State University. Big ten. Sure. These authors explored how parents' attachment orientations impacted their relationships with one another after having a baby. Shout out Jacob. And their experiences of their partner's relationship with their child. But what do we already know about becoming parents and how it affects ourselves and our co-parents? Lots and lots of research demonstrates transition to parenthood is a challenging life transition and an incredibly stressful time for the couple relationship as well. First time coupled parents tend to become less satisfied in their romantic relationships, report more conflict, do fewer things together, have less sex, yeah, change how (laughs) they take care of the house in ways that can be uncomfortably gendered, which altogether means their relationship quality goes south. And like we've said, there are decades of research documenting this. However, not all parents' relationships... Uh, thank you? That makes me feel great right now. <laughs> the truth is the you truth. The truth is the you're truth. Fine. Research doesn't you're, lie. You're just I have my stroller. I don't need anything else. But not all parent relationships change that way. See, there's oh. hope, Jacob. Whew. And one predictor of whether or not co-parents' romantic relationships may decline or not may be their own internal working models of attachment. In other words, as we become parents, this starts to activate our own memories of our own parents and how we experience our own relationship with our parents as children. And just as a caveat, like Sarah has some issues with differentiation, I have some ongoing negative relationships with um, attachment theory. To be clear, let's, I don't have let's personal issues with my own level of differentiation. <laughs> <laughs> Just the theory. Although Similar. part of me wonders Similar. if I do actually. <laughs> Having said that out yes, loud. Right. We'll revisit that in a different episode. And the authors describe that recent research shows that parents who experience attachment avoidance or a greater discomfort with being close and connected to loved ones tend to have worse adjustment to parenthood. And the same has been found for parents who experience attachment anxiety or fear of rejection and abandonment in relationships. 
What these authors wanted to focus on was whether these attachment insecurity, so anxiety and avoidant attachment, might predict new parents' worry about their partner's relationship with their new infant. In other words, do partners who are more avoidant or anxious in part due to their own childhood experience become more jealous of their partner's relationship to the new baby? And does this jealousy become part of that equation that leads to worse romantic relationship quality between the parents over time? Very, very fascinating and timely for one of us. So Sarah, (laughs) How in the world did these researchers measure parent-parent-baby jealousy? Mm-hmm. Which I think also, what I really love about this paper, before you get into it, is just this idea of being jealous of yes. your parent's relationship is kind of taboo, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people feel this, but maybe don't feel safe talking about it either. So I, I really love this topic. Yes, and to be clear, they didn't measure the baby's level of jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that is a complicated emotion that babies don't have yet. Just one partner's perception of the other partner's relationship to their new baby. But I like the idea of baby jealousy. So they had a sample of 180. Let's go ahead to start with that. <laughs> oh, I see where we're headed. I got three words in. Fantastic. <laughs> Triggers all my personal <laughs> levels of attachment. All I, love you, I love you. 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 So they had they had they had a sample. <laughs> I have 182 dual earner, different Ooh. gender couples. Meaning these couples were male female, and they both worked full time. They were expecting their first child, and. They had some plans to return to work afterwards, at least part-time. So they were looking at these couples across their transition to becoming parents. So most of these couples were married, about 86%, and the remainder were also were living together. 85% of this sample was white moms and dads. They were required to be able to speak English. They ranged from 18 to 50, so that's a pretty wide range for first-time parents. And they had a median household income of 78,000. So they were fairly high SES, mostly white, mostly married, and heterosexual, which is important to remember because that's a limitation of this study. They were also recruited from course a midwestern city yeah. does that mean i mean I've, no idea what <laughs> midwestern city seeing how these people are all from ohio state but, true but yeah. actually maybe columbus <laughs> wow so is ohio considered the midwest then i guess i never really thought of yeah yeah so, ohio's definitely the midwest oh, ohio's definitely the midwest as our midwest expert yeah. which our podcast <laughs> definitely needed more of <laughs> so can i feel that like this this sample is describing Chelsea and I. Sure. Right? Oh yeah, like, I didn't this select is... this study because it didn't overlay all of your personal stuff. <laughs> You're just trying to bring up my own anxiety. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when I'm so busy watching just Frozen One and Frozen Two in the office again, I have a lot of time to think about how I want to just push your buttons. So, so. <laughs> They recruited them from childbirth education classes and newspaper ads, as well as like snowball sampling from people who had already participated. So it was a convenient sample. And they surveyed them at three different times. So in the third trimester, and then three months postpartum and nine months postpartum. So at the very beginning, the partners filled out these surveys of their attachment orientation, their personality, and how 
adjusted they were as a couple, quality of their relationship. And then three months after the baby was born, they reported on their feelings of jealousy of their partner's relationship with this infant. And that included five items such as, it is unfair, I shouldn't laugh. So this is legitimate, people feel this and I'm a therapist, I shouldn't laugh. But the, the, the items I wrote down because they kind of made me giggle when I read them too. It is unfair when my baby receives more attention from my spouse or partner than I do. Stupid baby. I resent it when my, it didn't say that part. I resent it when my spouse or partner is more affectionate with our baby than she or he is with me, which understandable. And then nine months they were asked about their dyadic adjustment, their relationship quality again. This makes sense because we know that the infidelity rate increases up to two times after the birth of a child. So I can totally see how this is linked to uh, relationship satisfaction. So these researchers tested these relationships using what we've talked about here. We've talked about on the podcast before this, what we call actor partner interdependence model, which looks at both parents reports at the same time. And then they're tracking these findings for the first three months and then for the full nine months, which is really interesting. What they found that was really, really interesting, I think it's fascinating, was that expectant moms and dads who reported that they were higher in attachment anxiety before the baby was born, meaning they were saying that they had more of that anxiety and fear and worry about, is is my partner going to leave me? Are they going to abandon me? Are they going to be there inconsistently for me? The more attachment anxiety they had, the more jealousy they reported of oh. their partner's relationship with their infant three months after the baby was born. So for both mothers and fathers this is not like yes. necessarily a gender thing this is both partners right. are experiencing the same thing right and then what was also even more interesting i think is that partners of moms and dads who are higher in attachment anxiety also reported greater jealousy of the partner's relationship with their baby so not only does my own attachment anxiety levels predict how jealous i feel Mm -hmm. about my partner but my partner's anxiety levels predict how jealous i am of my partner's relationship with the baby so like so like a spillover effect like how my part my partner's anxiety might be spilling over to me therefore making me more more jealous I'm feeding off of my partner's anxiety. Also, it's possible that over some amount of time that potentially, I mean, I, I'm not sure how you all think about this, but it's, I imagine it could also be possible that in this transition to parenthood, as we our identities shape and reshift, we yeah. could also incorporate some of our partner's anxiety, attachment anxiety, just by function of being in those relationships longer it starts to shape how I feel about relationships. No, and that that makes logical sense. But I think according to attachment theory, like it's a one and done, like whatever (laughs) attachment you have as an infant, that is what you have for the rest of your life. But I agree with you. (laughs) And to be clear, these researchers measured the attachment anxiety and avoidance, their attachment orientation of this sample before just one time in third trimester. Mm. So that's just something I'm curious about. And there's no gender differences. This is moms and dads, my own anxiety and my partner's anxiety. Now, attachment avoidance, this feeling uncomfortable getting really close to people, was not associated with jealousy, mine or my partner's. So it was really about the anxiety. 
And then they extrapolated out further to that nine-month wave. And they tested whether that jealousy functioned as a link. The relationship satisfaction looked nine months after the baby was born. And so what they found was that greater attachment anxiety in the third trimester was linked to worse dyadic adjustment or lower relationship quality at nine months postpartum through or because of linked by jealousy. that jealousy of my partner's relationship oh, with interesting. the baby. And that was true for, again, myself and for my partner. So jealousy partially answers that why does yeah. relationship satisfaction decline? Partly it could be due to feeling jealous of your partner's mm-hmm. relationship with the baby. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, it was not just my jealousy then predicts six months later how I feel about the relationship. My jealousy predicts how my partner feels about oh. my relationship and vice versa. So, so again, that, some of that, that spillover and... Some of those dyadic, effect, those dyadic effects occur right. are occurring over these three waves of data collection, which is really interesting. Yeah, and it just also shows how important dyadic data is. Like if we would have mm-hmm. just seen this only from one individual's point of view, you wouldn't we know. wouldn't have known that, that that spillover or that couple effect does happen. Yeah, this is fantastic. Well, and I think one way that you could even take this a step further is it would be therefore interesting to have family level data because we don't know how this then affects the parent-child relationship or their parenting strategies or postpartum depression can also be linked to parenting skills around that time. Or how your parents and parents-in-law might impact that relationship, might impact how you mm-hmm. are um, moving forward as a yep. new parents. And we, I mean, we've talked about the limitations of the sample for sure, and they didn't assess for changes in attachment orientation over this transition, which is one of the biggest life transitions that people can make. Don't be afraid, Jacob. Everything we're saying <laughs> should just reassure you. But I mean, I think it's what's really interesting is that at least the way in which these authors are applying attachment theory and how we develop our own internal working models about how parent-child relationships should work does influence who we become, what this looks like right. over the life course. And ang- attachment anxiety was a, was the key player here. And this wasn't, this wasn't unique for men versus women or vice versa. This was true for both parents. So I think probably important, I mean, I think that I personally think this is important anyways. I don't, this study didn't convince me, but I think that having conversations about how your family of origin operated in regards to parenting and what you value or think about in terms of becoming a parent and how you want to make that transition to parenthood, how you want your relationship to look, what your goals are, what your values and expectations are. I think having open, honest conversations about that before having a baby (laughs) could be really important for your partner to know where might I need to show up for you most and could that could that change in ways that I might not know about because we're not talking about what your own experiences were from childhood and if you are pregnant and haven't had that conversation yet the baby takes nine months to grow so you know you're good you have a whole nine months to talk about it and I also think I mean you mentioned earlier Patricia that these are these five items asking about jealousy of my partner's relationship with my child are potentially capturing things that people aren't talking about very openly I would say potentially and this is not what the study tested but possibly to interrupt some of those continued downstream effects of jealousy on the quality of our relationship if you're experiencing 
having some of that feeling left out or feeling like you miss your partner or you want to connect with them more because those are some of those things that happen and are occurring behind the jealousy that if we can get at some of those underlying experiences about what you need from your partner and share those that it might be or what you might need and might need to seek from other people as well because your partner might not be the only one that can provide you some support if you're feeling lonely or left out or like this becoming a parent thing is super super hard it's important to talk about and parenting doesn't necessarily have to be two dyads the mother and the child and the father and the child it also can be three people doing an activity together so also thinking about it in that way too start that triangulation young is what i'm yeah so (laughs) i had a couple of we love that not at all not at all related to her level of attachment anxiety (laughs) though just to be clear it's not about her So I had a couple of thoughts in reading this. So have any of you, this is kind of the more fun one. Have any of you ever heard of Mike Birbiglia? Like his stand-up comedy and the movies he's been in. He did like Sleepwalk With Me was a movie that was about his life. Anyway, he's got a special on Netflix that if you are a person whose partner is expecting, I would highly recommend you watch it because it deals exactly with this. I don't know if you'd seen it yet, Sarah, but when you like pulled this up, I was like, oh, this is exactly what he's describing. You know, in between Frozen 1 and 2, you could probably... Sure, right. Yeah, no, I knew where you were headed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Twist it round and Pour some salt in it. But he, he actually has a line in there where he's sitting there and expressing this jealousy and he steps back and he looks at his wife and his son and he says I realized that my wife was having the most involved love affair of mm-hmm. her life mm-hmm. and that he like couldn't he wasn't feeling that way and that was okay he became closer to the kid as the kid grew up but to be able to recognize that and talk about that and the struggles and to be honest about that I think that's what you're getting at and I think mm-hmm. it's a good illustration so if anybody wants to watch Mike Rabiglia's The New One on Netflix, highly recommend. My other thought, and this this is a, not, a knock on this research because I thought this was really well done to have both partners collecting this data at a yeah. unique time point during a developmental transition. It's very it's cool. awesome um, mm-hmm. and really intentional and the level of follow-up data, you know, like they have across time points. So it's really great. cool and how they've mm-hmm. done this. But... I do think that sometimes we fall into this trap of suggesting that in our minds, we only have one internal working model of attachment, right? Mm. They're talking about this in terms of, you know, how they viewed their parent-child relationship. But we know from looking at attachment research among kids that kids can and do have multiple attachment systems and these systems can look very different. So I also wonder too, if what they're reporting here and the reason why there's this connection between attachment, anxiety, jealousy, and later marital quality is perhaps be indicative of the current attachment system they're embedded in, as well as past attachment systems. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we have good research to show that couples who are distressed tend to become more distressed after the birth of a child. Whereas couples who are relatively happy will tend to stay in this level where they may dip a little bit, but tend to go back more to baseline. So I don't think that just because you potentially had, as Patricia was alluding to, an anxious or an avoidant attachment system with a caregiver or parent growing up, that you're destined to be more jealous in your relationships. But I do think it's important to recognize and understand the attachment systems you're embedded in and the role you take in each of those and how that role in that system can perpetuate certain reactions 
and certain outcomes. So viewing yourself as if you are in this role where you're the person in your relationship who has higher attachment anxiety in your partner relationship of being more cognizant and or if you're the person that tends to be more avoidant, being cognizant of your partner's anxiety and reaching out to bridge mm. that gap and shifting the mm. system, the attachment system you're embedded yeah. in. So it's more safe, more predictable, more reassuring. I love it. Love it. I do too. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, family, and partners. We hear advice from parents and loved ones and friends. We see advice in movies and TV shows. And advice is spewing at us on social media, blogs, and numerous article lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for relationships. This is the part of the show when we use science to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can leave us a message, 865-229-6775. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Or tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us at attachedpodcast. Or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please remember to rate and review our wonderful podcast so we can get it to more people's ears. This week, a listener asked how to differentiate between good and bad advice on how to cope with a toxic mother-in-law. I think this is a great question and I found a one of those list articles, nine ways to deal with an overbearing mother-in-law. Now this article is rather gendered before we get into it. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna try and make it a little bit less gendered because you can have a toxic relationship with both mother and father-in-laws, no matter what your own gender is. Are you guys ready? Let's do it. Advice point number one. Talk it out with your parent-in-law. Let them know you realize your partner is their child and then and that transition isn't easy. Follow it up by being clear with examples of things you won't compromise on. Maybe you'd like her to call before she comes over. Perhaps you don't want them telling you how to raise your children or asking you why don't you pack a lunch for your partner each day cheese and crackers. Chances are if you tell them in a nice calm way they will stop. Maybe this isn't how their mother or father-in-law treated them or maybe she has no idea it bothers you because you've never mentioned it before. So that's point number one. Talk it out. Good or bad advice? I'm gonna say good advice. And the reason I'm going to say good advice is because I do think it's important to be pretty clear about boundaries you want to set with your parents-in-law. I think it's okay to say, hey, I would like you to call before you come over. I think it's pretty clear. What I don't like about this advice is that when they say, chances are if you say it in a nice way, they'll stop. Yeah, that's what? probably not going yeah, to that's... work. I feel like this is the first step in establishing this boundary. And there are other pieces and components to it. But I think that if you are noticing this for the first time, so say, for example, you were transitioning to parenthood and you have your first child and you notice that your parent-in-law is saying something about your parenting, I think it's okay to say, hey, I get you did things differently. I know right. we're doing things the way you might not approve of, but that's how we're going to do. 
I don't think that's going to solve the issue, and we'll get into this as we kind of go on to more of these advice, but I do think it's an okay first step to be pretty transparent and straightforward about setting a boundary with parents-in-law. So good advice. Good advice. Woods? Uh, I say bad advice. I don't disagree that it's important to have clear boundaries, obviously. I disagree that it's good advice to have the partner have the conversation with their in-laws directly because it makes me curious about where is the in-laws child? Where is that other person? And why are they not Mm. communicating with their own parents? Because I think that's a pretty important boundary. And I think if we're talking about the gendered nature of this advice and this article specific focus on mother-in-laws of which mother-in-laws often become a very salient part of the family especially for daughters-in-law so there's research to suggest that that mother-in-law daughter-in-law relationship and the support the mother-in-laws can provide can also be experienced as very intrusive and then daughters-in-law tend to carry the weight of having that conversation but I think that in and of itself reflects or continues to perpetuate a pattern about why the son is not having a direct conversation with their own parents about I am navigating creating my own family here my own nuclear family and here's how my partner and I have decided that we would like things to operate I also am not sure why this needs to involve like one sit down conversation where I say I know the transition isn't easy for you but I'm going (laughs) to lay down all the rules like somehow this concrete transition happened a wedding happened and now we've all agreed on what the rules shall be thou shalt perform this kind of support in this way for the rest of existence so i I just i really don't like that advice so the idea of setting boundaries maybe isn't bad advice but how they go about saying to set those boundaries is in a very you know one-dimensional way where maybe it isn't maybe that yeah the dyad the the new couple dyad should agree on what those boundaries are and communicate those effectively to whatever in-law is causing problems or their own parent yeah Um, like yeah i didn't i uh you can see that i did not think about that that way sarah and i would agree (laughs) with you if you were expecting like i wouldn't expect chelsea to have a conversation with my mother nor i expect me to have a conversation with chelsea's mother i would expect to have one on my own and i think that's the appropriate way to set a boundary Mm -hmm. right it's not my partner's responsibility to set that boundary for me i think that's a really good point to bring up i do think that that happens a lot though and i just think Mm -hmm. the research suggests that that's a pretty gendered leaning so so do i sense that jacob has changed his mind i still think it's good advice to talk with your in-laws but potentially not do it in a triangulative sort of way i'm staying i'm trying not to go on the fence i'm trying really hard not to be on the fence okay, okay 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 so we have a differing of of opinions though they both make relevant points though jacob thinks it's good advice though he agrees with sarah so we're just gonna write our own advice here anyway moving on to number two plan an activity for your spouse and their this one it says mother but parent whether you are on their turf or they are on yours plan something fun for them and your partner to do without you maybe it's lunch at their favorite restaurant or a trip to their favorite store and a movie, whatever it may be, it's going to be a win for them because they get to spend time with their child, your partner. And it'll be a win for your partner, hopefully, because they will get to spend time with their parents without you threatening to chop her hair off oh my goodness. once she falls asleep. Oh my. <laughs> and it will be really nice for you because you'll have that break. Good or bad advice? Uh- 
Plan bad advice. Really bad, bad advice. advice. I think that parents and kids, adult kids of adult parents should be able to plan their own activities and if they need that time to connect and do things without a partner, the partner shouldn't be the one planning that out for them. Similar to what Woods was saying before, sure, I think it's fine if, you know, parents want to spend time with their kids without their partners. That's fine with me. And they can plan that, but don't have the, you know, this is going to be gendered, right? It shouldn't fall on the daughter-in-law to carry all of the emotional weight, not only for her partner, but also for her partner's family. I say good advice. <laughs> and, and I know Jacob was doing all of that because he was hoping that he would align with Sarah. This is one of my favorite episodes. I mean, one of my favorite parts because it's always like, what's going to happen? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I do, I certainly agree that this could be like a gendered prospect about like having to do work to plan activities. I do also think it is fine that I think in this context, potentially you're giving advice about somebody maybe whose in-law is visiting from out of town, for example. I think it's totally okay to take a break from that activity. And it could potentially be a nice gift that you give your partner to say, oh, I set up this fun thing for you. I made you guys dinner reservations or I got you like movie tickets or I know you wanted to go golfing or whatever. I I think, I just think it's okay to take permission, to give yourself permission, give your whole family permission to not need to spend all of your time together as one unit and that it's okay to take a break, especially if you're a person who's threatening to chop your mother-in-law's hair off once they fall asleep. <laughs> That's a pretty in- intense relationship that could be causing a lot of stress, not just to the child-in-law, but also their partnership. And so it's okay to take a break. So we're on the fence again, but what it sounds like is make sure that this isn't gendered and it's okay to plan activities, give yourself that permission to step away from activities. I mean, I also think another component is the, in this is understanding personalities. And if you need to manage personalities by scheduling out the day, then that's okay. Cause mm. it's, it's also protecting yourself, right? From being enraged. So it's, it's almost like it could be seen as like a self-protective, like self-care. self-care. Activity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. But again, it shouldn't fall solely on one partner, most likely the female version of that partner. All right, you guys, we're going to number three. Try really hard to make a clear cut good or bad advice. Just try, try hard for me on this one. Number three, have your spouse set boundaries. So this is basically like women, women in the house, don't do all the work, let your husband or make your husband or whatever the action word, set those boundaries with parents. Good or bad advice, Jacob? Good advice. I think we've tread on this before. I would say good advice. That's all I have to say about it. Woods? I think that's what I was saying in response to the first piece of advice you described is that it's your own job to set your own boundaries with your own parent. And if you are creating this triangle you're creating this triangle where you are not able to do that and haven't sorted out your own differentiation issues with your family of origin then your partner has to step in and kind of manage that anxiety you've got you've got a really problematic process that isn't going to stop on its own that's going to continue over time and that's going to get worse good advice 
we did it. All right, next, and then we're gonna call it a, a day and you guys can check out the other ones. Dish it back to her. If your in-laws tell Thanks. you the correct way to cook chicken as they eat the chicken for dinner that you just made, you can suggest they treat you all to a nice meal out the next time she visits. If she gives your house the white glove test and drags her fingers across your picture frames to see how much dust collected, then offer her the Swiffer Duster. Pass the torch to the one who knows how to keep the home in better shape than you do. Problem solved. So dish it back to her. Good or bad advice? I'm going to say bad advice, right? Like I would suggest that if you are trying to set boundaries, if you are trying to establish and maintain a healthy relationship with your in-laws, being passive aggressive, (laughs) dishing it back, being, I think in some ways, a petulant child about that can be a little problematic but I do can see the value in like maybe more of a strategic intervention. I like this idea that like if running finger across the dust of of not reacting to like oh well I would have really appreciated if you have some suggestions to help clean it go for, go it. for it right I'm okay with that but this idea of like trying to make little digs and trying to say like oh well, it's okay to dish it back to her is not gonna really get the outcome you're looking for so bad advice bad advice in terms of like the passive aggressive nature of this mm-hmm. yeah Sarah what <laughs> your full name I, my, uh, I uh, Dr. Uh, Sarah Woods here for this fourth Dr. piece of advice. I mean, I'm going to say good advice. <laughs> Just to be obstinate. Um, I think what I heard Jacob do was relabel passive aggressive behavior as strategic behavior mm. in the course of his answer. And I agree that it's, I, it's just strategic. It is providing an alternate solution to the problem you didn't bring up. Yep. So I absolutely, I would love so much. You're right. I I need some help getting this place together. Oh my gosh, I would love so much if you could help me with that and show me exactly how you do it. Fantastic. There's nothing, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just would guess that there's probably not anything too inherently problematic. The, the reason I think it's funny is because the order in which you presented these pieces of advice, they first suggested out the gate, be really clear about what your standards are for the home and how they're allowed to treat you. And by advice number four, they're dishing it yeah. back to you. It's like passive aggressive. So yeah, 100%. Right. Like, did we, did we not just set those boundaries three pieces of advice ago? <laughs> and if we have, what I think really makes more sense is probably addressing or readdressing those with your own parent to say, you know, I understand if it it feels a little chaotic here and that we don't make dinner as often as you would like us to or as often as you might or as often as even we would like you to and instead we're doing a lot of takeout. It's really kind of hurtful and even a little bit alienating and uncomfortable when you're in our home and you're talking about how this isn't the dinner you would have made if you had the time to do it. It's really hurtful for us and it it stresses us out when you leave. Those conversations have to be visited and revisited. If in the meantime, if in the meantime you want to hand her a Swiffer, or a bucket of chicken. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> I think you've already developed a different problem that probably needs a different It kind solution, of reminds but. me of natural consequences when talking about parenting. Like, you know what? You forgot, like, you know, in middle school, you know what? You forgot to bring your lunch to school today. You are not going to be able to eat lunch, and you're going to have to eat when you when you get home home today. So these natural consequences, I feel, for in-laws, if they're going to complain and bitch about the way you do things, oh, a natural consequence is do it. 
go for it. Like, well, uh, I, my, my house is your house. Please enjoy. I think that, again, the research shows that the kind of support that in-laws provide can be really helpful for couples, but it also can be really stressful. And so if this is how they suggest that they would like to be more helpful or that they're worried about how much stress you have in your life or that your family seems kind of chaotic in this transition to parenthood or whatever it is, there are ways that they can offer support that can be less stressful. But in the meantime, what I would also like to suggest is dish it back to your spouse. So if this is (laughs) happening with your in-law, you need to come back to your partner to say, this is really making me uncomfortable in my own home. And it's I feel like it's really stra- straining our relationship. Can you and I come back together to figure out what, if anything, can be done here? Limit how much time we spend with them. Have another conversation with them about what makes us uncomfortable. Just say, screw it. And people are just odd and different. And families don't right. always blend perfectly. And we can just deal with it when this happens. But I think readdressing that and reconnecting with your partner yeah. would be really important given what we know from the I literature. have a question. If I relabeled this, hold them accountable would that fit better as good advice to both of you all so i have some qualms with that a little bit um i don't know if you like adults should be able to hold themselves accountable i feel like i you know this this advice is very much one-sided you know we're saying that this is what the you know what you're saying to parents-in-law, but parents-in-law also play an active role in this and should be monitoring their own boundaries and their own processes of course. and their own on uh, their own part in the system as well. But we're so, assuming that they aren't. Yeah. So, I mean, given that <laughs> right. context, I think it's okay to set boundaries, say, this is not where you go. I think that's a little bit different than holding you accountable. Like holding you accountable sounds to me like, okay, we have this rule and you broke yeah. this rule, and now here's the consequence I enforced. <laughs> yeah. You don't necessarily have the authority in the relationship to do that. So for me, I like more so of like, you can set the boundary, and then it's on the onus is on your partner to continue to support and reinforce that boundary. And if it is continually violated in a way that is really toxic to your relationship, I think it's okay to distance your family at that point. If you've had multiple conversations, if you have had, if it has been so toxic to the point that you've tried, you've tried, and you've tried again, and there's no change, it's okay to say, okay, then we're taking a step back and we're not going to participate in this because it's unhealthy for us right now. That might have to be where the boundary goes if those boundaries aren't respected. I also think that there might be a point in my life where I become an in-law, and I think about probably my own mom if she was doing something that was really upsetting to my husband or my daughter eventually has like a partner that becomes part of our family I would want to know if there was some way that I was interacting with them that was unhelpful or unsupportive so the other one-sided perspective of this is it's not capturing the mother-in-law either and and maybe what they might hope would be honest communication that would come the other way because the family you're creating looks different than how they did it and they might not have a lot of insight i agree with jacob he's describing kind of going way past that which 
definitely happens. Yeah. We didn't get, we haven't gotten asked this question to talk about in-law advice 15 different times in the last six months because it's like a, a topic people aren't dealing with and, and struggling yeah. with. But I do think that it is a topic that you're right. We all silently struggle with because it's kind of like that dynamic that really we're supposed to smile and get along and it's supposed to be nice and supportive, but sometimes it's not. And I would really like to revisit some forms of, of this in a future episode as well. Thank you for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, tweet at us about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.